0: everyone and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, September 29th and I'm Lillian Curry, President and CEO of the Cleveland Foundation. It is my privilege to introduce today's forum, with Charlene Hunter-Gault, the 2023 Anisfield-Wolf Book Awards winner, Lifetime Achievement. It is also fitting that today is the Steve Minter Endowed Forum at the City Club. As you may know, Steve Minter served as president and executive director of the Cleveland Foundation for nearly two decades. He became the first African-American president of any U.S. community foundation. We are delighted that today's forum with Charlene is in his legacy. The Anisfield-Wolf Book Awards remains the only prize that recognizes books that made significant contributions to the understanding of racism and human human diversity. Poet and philanthropist Edith Anisfield-Wolf established the book prize in 1935 to reflect her family's commitment to social justice. Winners of the prize have included such notable writers as Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, Martin Luther King, Jr., Maxine Hong Kingston, and Isabel Allende, as well as Nobel winners Wole Soyinka, Nadine Gordimer, and Toni Morrison, just to name a few. Since 1965, the Cleveland Foundation has proudly administered the prize. Our esteemed guest today, Charlene Hunter-Gault, first made history in 1961 when she and Hamilton Holmes desegregated the University of Georgia after mounting a successful legal challenge that granted their admission. As she graduated, William Shawn, editor of The New Yorker, offered Charlene a position. She later became the first black journalist to write for Talk of the Town. Today, Charlene is a veteran journalist who has worked for The New York Times, PBS, NPR, and CNN. She received multiple awards, including an Emmy and a Peabody for her distinguished work covering apartheid in South Africa for PBS. In her latest book, My People, Five Decades of Writing About Black Lives, Charlene chronicles her lifelong commitment to reporting on black people in their totality, from the civil rights movement to the election of Barack Obama to backlash. Joining us for today's forum to moderate is Helen Maynard, an editor at Signal Cleveland. Helen is a longtime journalist, having reported for News Five in Cleveland and ABC News. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, po- please join me in welcoming Charlene Hunter-Gault and Helen Maynard. Helen, thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. <laughs> But it is a a pleasure it is to be here with you today, Charlene. And I have to bring up something that apparently came up last night. I understand you're starting a new campaign that we all want to know about, that you might be the next president of the United
2: States. Well, I mean, you know, you get to be 81. And um, there are other people who are 81 who are doing (laughs) doing things in the country. (laughs) (laughs) And I like that other person sometimes trip when I'm walking (laughs) up the steps and sometimes I forget a word or two and sometimes I just, uh, you know, enjoy myself no matter my age. And so I figured that watching someone else that age, maybe I could be POTUS too, why not? (laughs) But then I decided that it would be great to have a woman president, wouldn't it? And I mean, there are some around. And I think I could do it. But I think there's someone else who could maybe do it almost as good as me. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> Enough politics.
1: Enough politics. We'll talk about your writing. And I mean, you're here for a Lifetime Achievement Award you know that also recognizes writing that we're not always recognizing, about talking about culture, about talking about race. What did you think when you first heard you're getting this award? And what do you think about how we're elevating writing about race and culture now? What do I think about... About how we elevate or do not elevate writing about race and culture?
2: Well... We're in a transition, I think. Um, I, every day I look at an um, online piece from a young, well, not so young anymore, Richard Prince, who does this oh, yes. journalism. And he continues to keep up with the changes that are taking place as more people of color and more um, women are put into positions that they have not occupied in the past at least not in any significant numbers Um, so the times are changing Um, there is resistance you may have seen some of that resistance and it's resistance I don't understand uh, because I think that no matter what your political beliefs are your political affiliations or your political objectives (laughs) you need good information my colleague Jim Lehrer, who is now, as you know, uh, resting in peace with so many of our, you get to be 81, you got a lot of friends resting in peace, Um, but Jim used to say, give people good information, and they'll do the right thing. Now, you could debate what is the right thing, but that's what we journalists exist for, to give people options, not to tell you how to think, but to give you good information so that you can make your own decisions. And that's how I started early on in life. I started in Atlanta, Georgia, um, shortly after I had, and I thank you so much for using the word desegregate because we did not integrate, we desegregated. They're still integrating. They haven't integrated yet. As much as I love those dogs, go dogs! (laughs) We still have work to do, and I'm so happy that the people at the University of Georgia um, understand and appreciate that. But when I first went there, um, although I did develop some friends, especially in the journalism school, I went to work for the student newspaper, The Red and Black, and none of the students wanted to work with me. Now, either because they were concerned about how their friends might think of them, or I don't know, I never asked. But in the interim, the Atlanta student movement had begun, and that's when the young people, this was 1961, and the young people were demonstrating to end the separate but equal lie and the white newspapers weren't really significantly covering their activities, and the black newspaper, the oldest black daily in the country, the Atlanta Daily World, was sponsored primarily by white advertisers, so they limited their coverage as well. So a professor at Clark College, Carl Holman, and Julian Bond started the Atlanta Enquirer. so every Friday, I would finish my class and shoot to Atlanta, 70 miles away, drop my bag at my mom's house and go to Carl Holman's basement where they had set up the newspaper. So the students would go out, demonstrate, get arrested, because that was the idea. They needed to challenge why it was that that Georgia was not living up to the 1954 decision. And how many of you in here know about the 1950s? No, don't, don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass. <laughs> I am so amazed. I was at a school in, in Florida the other day, and I mentioned, <laughs> OK, no, no, we're going to get to Florida later, maybe. But I mentioned the 54 decision, and none of these young students had ever heard of it. And I wasn't totally surprised. So I explained what the 54 decision was to them. End of the session with the students and the young black teacher is walking me to my car. Now she must have been in her mid to late 30s, maybe early 40s, and she said that was really great, I really enjoyed it, but can I make a confession? I said, yes. She said, I didn't know what the 54 decision was. Now I'm not gonna ask how many people in this room don't know what the 54 decision was, but just think about it. One of the most significant pieces of legislation in this country is not being taught. And one of the things that bothers me so much is, and I know why you laughed at Florida, because I'm about to say that the effort to remove our history or to change it in some way that fits a particular political perspective is outrageous. We cannot allow that to happen. We, we cannot allow that to happen. And yet, now I haven't looked this up recently. Maybe some of you historians in the room can, can up, help me with this. But a few years ago, the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, reported that something like 80% of the schools in this country do not teach black history, or at least not in any significant way. And it, it, it's just unbelievable because it's American history. And so, uh, you know, it's. That's one of the reasons I keep on keeping on at 81. I may not be running for president, but I'm running for getting our history in our schools and among our people. So that
1: wasn't a gap for you. When you were growing up, history was everybody's history. Well, you were in
2: a segregated school. Yes, but okay, you got me to tell this story. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We're going to get comfortable. I was in a segregated school, to be sure. And we used to get the hand-me-down textbooks. from the, This was in Covington, Georgia. We used to 30 miles, to something 40 miles from Atlanta. We used to get the hand-me-down textbooks from the white schools, often with pages missing. And so every year, um, my school, the black school, would have a fundraiser to make up for some of the deficits. And whichever family raised the most money, their child would be crowned king or queen. Uh Now, my father was serving in the military. And last night, we had a wonderful gentleman in the audience who served in World War II. And I didn't get a chance to ask him if he knew my father. But that's where my father was in World War II, fighting for a country that didn't recognize him as a full citizen. But nevertheless. Um, my mother and grandmother go all around this little town, Covington, Georgia. They knew all of my uncle's girlfriends. (laughs) And of course, they didn't know each other. (laughs) So they would go to them, and this night comes, and everybody's counting the nickels and quarters and dimes, and I'm nervous, and all of a sudden I hear, and tonight, we have a new queen. It's Charlene Hunter. Well, the reward was a bull of a watch. Now, as I said, my father was in the military, so my family had a little money. So the bull of a watch didn't mean anything to me, but the diamond tiara. <laughs> I wore it every day, so many days that my girlfriends in class got so mad at me, they, they threatened me and I didn't want to get beat up, because they could do that. So I took off the physical crown, but the notion that I was the queen, you got, you, know, you got me. The notion that I was the queen took up residence in my head. So when I walked onto the campus of the University of Georgia and they were yelling the N-word, go home. I was looking around for who they were talking about because I, I knew I was the queen, right? So that that couldn't be me. And so from, again, 81 years old. Y'all, you ladies in here, work to get 81, okay? Because it can be so much fun. For my 81st birthday, you ready for this? The queen decided... LL Cool J says don't call it a new day I've been here before so
1: that strength and that regalness comes from the crown but also there's something from your upbringing I I remember looking at pictures in history books and newspapers seeing you sitting in the back of the car with Hamblin Holmes and you looked so calm they had just smashed the window, people were screaming hollering, and you're like, okay, we're getting ready to go for a ride. So where does that come from?
2: Well, um, it came from my upbringing, and that's why I see some young people in here. I hope your parents are here as well, because they probably do the same thing that that my parents did. Um, It was, I don't know, it was uh, my grandmother. My mother used to send me to Florida. Well, that was before the current Florida. <laughs> uh, my grandfather was what in the AME church is called a presiding elder, which is a teaching preacher. And he used to go around the state of Florida teaching preachers. My grandmother, however, was the saint. And so my mom would send me down there every summer to get some of that old time religion. Well, five and six years old, I didn't want to be bothered with that. So I would climb the mango tree and hide from my grandmother. But eventually, I'd have to come down out of the mango tree, having eaten the raw mangoes in my mouth like this. And my grandmother would teach me, make me learn a Bible verse every day. So the night that the students rioted outside of my dormitory at UGA and they finally, they took their time dispersing the crowd, believe me, but eventually they dispersed the crowd with tear gas. And the students were told to change their sheets because of the tear gas, I didn't hear any of that. And then they came and got me and they had thrown bricks through my window and so I knew that the crowd was an angry, uncontrollable crowd. But when the tear gas came, and they, would, they theoretically, or at least ostensibly, were dis, uh, disbanded, they came and got me to take me to pick up Hamilton. The girls had to live on campus. This was the days of the Magnolias, and they had to be treated like Magnolias. But the boys didn't have to live. So Hamilton lived with a black family about five minutes from my dorm. So when we got to his place, uh, he didn't even know that there had been a riot. But we get driven back to Atlanta by the state patrol, get to my home about two o'clock in the morning. Then the next morning, the journalists are all over our yard to find out what had happened the night before at University of Georgia. And so one of the journalists said to me, well, how How, how scared were you? I said, so I wasn't scared. And you know you, you learn lessons as a young person, young people over there, that stay with you, right? So when they, and, and sometimes you don't even know what you've learned, it's just internalized and in your brain and there it is. And so when they said, well, why weren't you afraid? And I suddenly realized, My grandmother had taught me, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I, I wasn't even conscious. But that's how important teaching our young people really is. You don't ever know where your lessons are going to appear in them but it'll be there. And as I said, I was five and six years old when my mother sent me to Florida to learn these things from my grandmother, but they stayed with me. And that night, and and on my way out, as I said, all the girls, they put me in a room by myself on the first floor. It had been the student government building, union uh, room, two rooms actually, and the girls were accusing them of discriminating because I had a kitchenette, (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't allowed to go. They didn't desegregate the cafeteria, in, you know. Initially, and I had a bathroom with a tub and a shower, whereas they had to go out in the hall and all shower together and stuff. So they were accusing us of discriminating against them <laughs> because they didn't have all these private things. But, but, and so when we were walk, I was walking out with the with the guard, with the, with the dean. The girls had come down after they had taken their sheets off of the bed, and as I walked past them, and they were in a semicircle, and I was heading to the door, one of them threw out a quarter and said, "Here, Charlene, go upstairs and change my sheets." And I just kept walking, gay though I walked through the valley. But I want to say something else, because I think that nowadays we generalize too much. We talk about white people. We talk about black people. We don't make distinct, well, I'm generalizing, too. (laughs) But I hear that much too much. And I want to say, while I'm in my dormitory, because at 81, I forget a few things every now and then. That's my husband. What's your name? He's taking notes to tell me what not to do next time I speak. I'm sure that's what he's doing. <laughs> um, that's one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was I talking about? I was saying
3: hmm.
2: Yeah, so I want to flip it, though, because I think we generalize much too much. We talk about white people, this. Black people, that. And from those early days, I I just refused to generalize because here were the girls in a semicircle saying, here, Charlene, go upstairs and change my sheets. A few days later, we readmitted. Our lawyers went straight to court, got us back in, boom, like that. Go back, I'm in my room. And there's a knock on the door, open the door, and there are three or four girls with bags of groceries. Now they knew that I had a kitchenette. And these girls said, "Uh, we've come to cook dinner for you if it's okay. I said, okay, fine. They come in and while one girl is cooking and the other one is setting the tables and making themselves comfortable in my rooms, they begin to tell me the story of the Jewish people and why it is that they were sympathetic to me and to what was going on. Now, I grew up again in Georgia. I knew black and I knew white. I didn't know about Jews, but that night, I learned about the Holocaust and the similarities between the discrimination that Jewish people face and not that different from what so many of us were facing. And even to this day, one of those girls, we, we're in communication, in fact, I, got, I owe her a call. Um, but I learned a lot that night about why we can't generalize when we are talking about people and their behaviors and their attitudes. I went to Israel once with a group of women, and organized by the Jewish women in in, uh, Tel Aviv, and um, no, it wasn't Tel Aviv, it was the other town. Um, Jerusalem? Jerusalem, and We'd gone all around town, all around, and the last day we were there, we were supposed to go to Golda grave. But nobody had ever said anything about the West Bank. And I had interviewed one of the leaders over there uh, in in another circumstance, in another location, some months, maybe a couple years before that. And I said to a couple of the women, you know, I'd like to just go to the West Bank, I'd I'd like to find out what's going on over there. So three of us didn't go to the Golda Meir thing, we went to the West Bank. And spoke to people over there about their issues and concerns about what was going on between them and the Israelis. Came back and it was all over everywhere that we had been. And that night I was supposed to summarize (laughs) the entire meeting and I don't think they wanted me to do it, but they had already asked me, and they were pissed off that I had gone to the West Bank, but they couldn't dismiss it, so I had to do it. So I get up, and I say, oh, it took a long time for them to finally call on me. It was like they were trying not to, and I kept saying. (laughs) But it wasn't to show off, it was to say that We have come this long distance so that we can understand more about the Jewish people and we've learned a lot. But part of what is happening here involves the people across the river. And um, we went there today and I talked, I summarized some of the things that we talked about. And everybody in the room is like, Uh, you know she's talking about them but when it was finished i said you know and i told them the story of what i just told you about the girls coming to my room i said but in order to bring it seems to me peace in this entire region we've got to have more communication like the kind i had today and so i hope that the next time I come, if I'm invited again, (laughs) I would like us to include a trip to the West Bank. Or maybe bring them over here. And in the audience was uh, the head of the military in in, um, Israel and several other officials. And there was a silence when I finished pause, silence, and then all of a sudden, the generals got up, and the other people got up, and everybody started applauding. I haven't been back, (laughs) (laughs) and so I don't know, and I know there's problems going on, as you've just seen. And one journalist was killed, and I hope by accident. But um, communication is the key. And we have to figure out how we communicate with people we don't know, people whose history we don't know. But we've got to be able to figure out how to bridge the gaps. And I'm so happy to see young people here, although I think most of them have left. But (laughs) (laughs) They probably had something to do.
1: So this is a great place to bring this in, so about peace and talking to each other. You live in Florida. You hear the rhetoric constantly, and we're hearing this constant rhetoric. Um, there's so many sides and, and so much angst. Do you see an opportunity? I think you have something in your book you want to read that talks about peace and bringing people together.
2: Oh, yeah. There, I do have that. Um, thank you for reminding me. Um, I do an occasional piece for the news hour now uh, called Race Matters, looking at solutions to racism, and I did one not too long ago with Don, uh, David Brooks, and you know David is an admitted conservative, but in the good sense of you know you can be a conservative and still be a good person, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, David is, and I I wanted to share this because. Um, I just thought that he has a good answer. He, he belongs to a group called the Weavers. And I asked him, I said, he said, um, we're talking about the George Floyd murder, and he said, the reaction to the Floyd murder has been on the whole a very good news story. He said, I look at the marches and there was some violence in the beginning, but the violence has gone down now they were not a black uprising, they were an American uprising. So I said, what's the solution to making the unity last? Now this is what is really important. You can take notes if you like. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can buy the book, it's in the book. (laughs) Did I do that? Uh, Uh, No, here's it. I said, what's the solution to making the unity last? And David said, I think the first thing we have to do is learn from each other and talk to each other. He said, My rule is the more uncomfortable the conversation is, the more I learn from it. And I'm so hoping the first thing we do is make use of this moment of useful discomfort to face realities in our country and to face each other, and that's the shift in consciousness that needs to take, you know, personal information and social transformation happen together, but then it has to be institutionalized with action. And I just, I thought that was, now that's coming from a man who is a self-identified conservative, but if you've seen him on the news hour, you know, he and Jonathan occasionally agree. Uh, And when they disagree, it's usually polite.
1: Well, uh, this is a great opportunity for us yeah. to open the floor for questions. So everyone, get their questions ready. And please, um, we want to give you a warm thank you. This time went so fast. Thank you so much for talking with me.
4: Thank you so much. What a delight to have the two of you here on stage. Uh, we are about to begin the audience q and I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club of Cleveland. And we are joined by author Charlene Hunter-Gault, the 2023 Lifetime Achievement Award winner with the Ennisfield-Wolf Book Awards. Moderating the conversation is Helen Maynard, editor of Signal Cleveland. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our livestream at cityclub.org, or live radio broadcasts at 89.7 WKSU, Ideastream Public Media. If you'd like to text a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and our City Club staff will do our best to work it into the program. May we have the first question, please?
3: Thank you so much and this was not prearranged. <laughs> would you and thank you from those days at the University of Georgia down to now would you comment on your experience and Ron's experience in South Africa on special assignment, but in in different lanes and your interaction and friendship with President Mandela.
2: Now, this is one of my heroes right here. So let's just I I don't I don't miss a Sunday listening to his son, Otis the third. And if he happens to be there, him. So it's like but that was a setup. <laughs> no, you know, my husband Ron and I lived in South Africa for 17 years. Ron uh, at the uh, JP. Morgan Bank. that was before it got into trouble at the end of the day. And, um, and I for first uh, uh, NPR and then CNN, and um, then I stopped to write a book about. Africa because Africa was always covered in terms of the four Ds, death, disease, disaster, and despair, and there's more to the country than that. But having the comment in relationship to the question I just was asked, um, there is a lot of despair in Africa generally and especially in South Africa where they have no electricity eight hours a day and where uh, the poor uh, communities are even poorer and being abused by people who are desperate and that doesn't excuse lawlessness uh, and some of it is just taking advantage of the situation but some of it is born out of desperation and so it's a very difficult time including a lack of principled leadership and the people who are now challenging the leadership, which is, as I said, unprincipled for the most part, um, are similarly unprincipled. Don't quote me, please. Uh, I don't plan to go back anytime soon, so you can quote me. Um, no, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging time for the country because the country has major problems, and yet the leadership is not living up to its responsibilities of ensuring that all of the citizens are taken care of, so it's a place. There are organizations that we can, you can participate, you can help support with money or, you know, publicity or whatever. But um, you know, it's it's. And then you asked about Mandela. Uh, there have been some back even today some backlash against his leadership, but I think that um, when, I think that the sacrifices that Mandela and his people who went to prison for freedom for the country and against apartheid did a great job. And I know that Americans don't like Toto and Becky because of the position that he took on um, HIV, but uh, he was principled, he was not corrupt. And he took an incorrect position on AIDS, but um, you can't accuse him of the things that the current leadership is guilty of. Um, and the, the people who are standing in line to succeed the current president are in no better shape. Uh, Mandela left a legacy. And I'll tell you a real quick story. Um, when I first sat down to interview him, you know, when he gets out of prison, everybody in the world wants to interview him, and my editor, my producer, called me in New York and said, "You heard the news? The clerk is fleeing, uh, f- freeing Mandela." I said, "Have you made a reservation?" She said, "I got a reservation." About that time, my editor called, Les Crystal. And he said, you've heard the news? I said, yes, and get, Jackie's made our reservations to get, you had to go then to London and then down, you couldn't go straight like you can now. And so she, I said, okay, he said, well, let me just talk to Jim, Jim Lehrer, and I'll get back to you. So he calls back and he said, Jim said that, you know, PBS always struggling for, you know, he said, Jim said, you can, he, they can only afford to send you if you can guarantee an interview with Mandela. <laughs> I said, of course I can guarantee an interview with Mandela. Anyway, well, I had kept up with them over the years as, as time had gone. I'd been there in 85. So we get there, and I said to them, look, I want to be the last one because there were journalists from all over the world there. And I said, and everybody else was getting 10 minutes. I said, could I get half an hour? And they said, yeah, you can get half an hour. So we get to the end, they've been interviewing Mandela all day, and they say, okay, it's time for you. And I said, you know, this man has been in prison for 27 years, and he's been sitting there all day, not even taking a break. Now, this is a little bit treacherous, I'm on, you know, I said, but could he just stop and have a cup of tea before I do my interview? And they thought, oh, yeah, that's a good, you know, none of them had experience with journalists, so this is all very new. So he goes in, he has a cup of coffee or tea or whatever, and then he comes back out and he sits down and I I wanna establish myself as being different from the other journalists, right? So I I start to say, um, Mr. Mandela, you know, um, I come out of the American Civil Rights Revolution And before I could get the rest of it out of my mouth, he says, oh, do you know Miss Maya Angelou? (laughs) Now, the truth of the matter is I didn't know her personally, (laughs) but of course I knew her work. So I said, oh, yes, sir. Now everybody in there is looking for a scoop. All these journalists from all over the world. He asked me about Maya Angelou, and I said yes. And he says, "Well, we read." And he always spoke in the in the third person. We read all of her books while we were in prison. And I said, "Ooh, I just got a scoop." Nobody else had anything about what he had been doing while these you know they were all asking him political questions, you know, but I had something nobody else had. And then we began to have uh, a good friendship. And of course the um, the uh, woman who he hired to help bridge the gap between the apartheid people and the liberation people hated me because every time, Mandela would see me, he would respond to me, but she wanted to be the one to make the decisions about who he talked to. Um, So every time he had a press conference, I would make a point of going up to him and whispering something in his ear. (laughs) And one time, I went up to him and I said, Madiba, I said, I saw he was early 90s, I said, you read that whole thing without even a, no glasses, what did you? He said, oh, I have a very good doctor. His name is so-and-so. And I said, because I'm you know, getting to the point. He said, well, this is who he is and you call him and you tell him I do. and meanwhile she's going nuts. But anyway, I didn't even mention her name because I can't even remember it. But um, we had a very good relationship and I think that despite the fact that there's some brushback now about him, That's that's just the way life is, and I think that he will always have the position that he and Dr. King and all of those who have fought for equality and human rights uh, deserve to have.
1: Okay, I think we have another question.
2: And I'll be brief in your answer.
5: (laughs) I'll try to be. You have been my hero for 60 years. I was a junior in high school in Atlanta, Georgia, When your courage in the face of rioters brought down the entire legal framework of American apartheid in Atlanta, your courage kept my school open and integrated for my senior year, where I happened to be editing the school newspaper, (laughs) in one of the first four desegregated schools in Georgia. Thank you, and I'm so glad to finally see you in person.
2: Well, thank you.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. We have another question here.
3: I too hail from an Atlanta, Covington, Orlando family. Um, My father was accepted by UGA Law School in the mid-1940s. And when it was discovered that he was black, and I don't know how they couldn't figure out because he was a Morehouse grad. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) His admission was rescinded, and he was given financial support to attend law school in the North, which I have since heard was a fairly common practice. So he graduated from law school here in Cleveland. Mm. I just had to take this opportunity to thank you for having the courage to walk through the open door that my father helped to crack open. I, too, am one who had to walk through a cracked open door after the assassination of dr king Mm. um in the ivy league so i know what it must have been like for you so thank you you're my hero
2: thank you thank you for sharing thank you
1: trying to get to as many questions as possible we have another question
5: um you talked about earlier about um trying to change black history in schools talked about you know, change to make it politically. How would you understand, how would you say we can bring dignity back to our young people? How to bring dignity? dignity. back to, young, to, to our young people. All the things that you went through were going through a segregated school system, I mean segregated college. Now how we as our uh, young people can appreciate about having dignity for themselves. What the, all the things that you went through. Yeah. What was your advice would be?
1: So like, yeah, I think if you summarize it, we aren't seeing ourselves. Is it important to see ourselves, and how do we see ourselves, and how can we, how can we teach younger people better to
2: relate to the world? Well, that's why I think we have to fight these efforts to either eliminate or remove some of our history from the schools. I mean, even Toni Morrison, didn't somebody just mention Toni Morrison in here a few minutes ago? She's being blackballed in some schools in the South. And probably anybody you can think of who's done wonderful (laughs) contributions to our literature and to other aspects of our lives are being eradicated, eliminated uh, from schools. And I think that's what's important, to keep those in there and to keep fighting. Because I keep saying that our history is our armor. Right. That history, going back to the first slave ships, we've got a history that even though it, there are times in it that are depressing and sad, like slavery and all of that, we've also had people who fought against the systems that keep every keep some of us down. And that history needs to be taught. And if we are properly taught, then I think our society is gonna be a better place for all of us, but if you keep eliminating stories and authors and people who have interpreted our lives and our circumstances, it's not gonna happen. So that's a fight that needs to be fought that's right. on a daily, hourly basis in radio and television and every single place you can think of because our children are being denied their heritage and that's black kids, and white kids, and Asian kids, and Indian kids. It's all of our people. We have to make sure that these efforts to eliminate our history, rather than having efforts that polish our armor. And that's why I'm hoping my my book will help polish the armor. Because these aren't about, many of the people in this book are not heroes. They're just ordinary people living their lives and some are heroes um, but i think that that's one of the biggest challenges we have in this country today to fight the system that's trying to eliminate our history we have another question
5: yes hello my name is kyle williams i'm 15 and i go to mc square stem high school and I wanted to know about what did you think about how people in the LGBTQ plus community are fighting for their rights currently against the government who doesn't want them, such as Florida and um, places like Texas, Ohio. yeah, Texas and Florida <laughs> and Ohio, yeah, <laughs> But, but like, you know, no, I just wanted to know what you think about those people who are currently fighting for their rights and if you can kind of find any similarities between the black history movement, or maybe just like how the kitchen story, how the Jewish people were able to uh, explain to you their heritage, and how they're also currently erasing LGBTQ history, such as book banning and banning certain media. And I just wanted to know your opinion on that.
2: Thank you for the question. It fits a, it, 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 it. yeah. It, it, it's a part of this total thing that I've... It, there's no difference. I mean, in, in my book, uh, there's, a, there's a piece that I did about the LBGTQ people in, in, in South Africa, mm-hmm. some of whom were being murdered. The women especially uh, were being raped and murdered, and um, I went around with a bunch of them uh, as they were attempting to see if they couldn't create systems that were more protective of them. And so it's no different. I mean, it's the same. Discrimination is discrimination. Whether it's against LGBTQ people, or whether it's against black people, or Asian people, or whatever. Discrimination is discrimination against people. And even people who've been to prison, many of them get reformed in prison, and they come out, and they need to be supported. And so it's very important to be educated to your community and your surroundings and the people and what they're going through so that you can be supportive of them. They're people. People too. Right? Yeah.
1: Hi, my name is Michelle. I'm from the Cleveland School of the Arts. I am a junior and a creative writing major. Um, I'm sure, you know, as you know, there have been several book bannings and book burnings. And there's um, a wave of censorship coming over our country. I wanted to know what advice you would give young writers such as myself in this trying time on the writing community.
2: Good question. And I'm going to give you my card so you can email me some of the things you've written. Uh, I, I think you just have to look at the history of good writers and, and people who've been successful in their work. And, you know, we, we are in a trying time right now, as we just talked about the, the discrimination against uh, so many of our named people. Um, but you just have to keep at it. You just and, and find the people who can be supportive, people that you can talk to and who can help you. I'm sure you have a teacher or more than one teacher uh, who, who can help you along the way. And uh, that's very important to just keep at it if that's your passion. It was my passion from the time I was five years old and read about the comic strip character Brenda Starr. And, <laughs> Here's also something, you need support, if you can get it, from family and friends. When I told my mother, uh, I was about five or six years old living in a segregated community in Covington, Georgia, and I said to my mother, I just read about Brenda Starr and I think I wanna grow up to be Brenda Starr. My mother didn't say, that's not what little black girls like you can do. My mother said, oh, my mother was very, understated, but very firm. She said, if that's what you wanna do. And that was all the inspiration I needed. And then I go to my black, high, black school and I learn about Ida B. Wells. And so I went from Brenda Starr, traveling the world in search of people, to Ida B. Wells, and then Zora Neale Hurston, and, and you know, they are models for you to learn from, and to be inspired by. And I'm going to give you, as I said, my card. So if your teacher can't give you the solutions, I will send you some.
4: (laughs) Uh, Today's forum is presented in partnership with the Annisfield-Wolf Book Awards and is part of the City Club's Authors in Conversation series presented in collaboration with Cuyahoga County Arts and Culture and Cuyahoga County Public Library. Today's forum is also the Stephen A. Minter Endowed Forum. Mr. Minter spent his life in pursuit of justice. He was the first African American to lead the Cleveland Foundation, the Cuyahoga County Welfare Department, Massachusetts Public Welfare Commission, and what's now the American Public Human Service Association. He was also the founding undersecretary of the US Department of Education. We are grateful to those who endowed this forum and to the Minter family we have Robin here with us today for their long-standing support of the City Club. The City Club would also like to welcome students joining us from the Cleveland School of the Arts, Kenneth Clement Boys Leadership Academy, MC Squared STEM High School, and the City Club Youth Forum Council. We would also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by Anisfield-Wolf, the Center for Community Solutions, Cuyahoga Community College, the Greater Cleveland Association of Black Journalists, Huntington, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and the Literacy Cooperative. Thank you all for being with us here today. Next week, the City Club has four forums for you, all of which you can check out at cityclub.org. But first, on Wednesday, October 4th, the City Club will be back at the Happy Dog in the Gordon Square Arts District. This will be our 10th year of hosting free Happy Dog Takes On series, and that evening we'll be, taking, uh, we'll be talking about the important role independent venues serve our communities as third spaces and the live entertainment ecosystem. Idea Streams Amanda Rabinowitz will lead the conversation with Sean Watterson of Happy Dog and Cindy Barber with the Beachland Ballroom. And just announced, the City Club's 2023 annual meeting and community open house will be hosted on Friday, October 27th. Um, we will have Craig Hassel, President and CEO at Playhouse Square, in conversation with Dan Mothrup here at the City Club about the intersection of free speech and the art of the spoken word. Immediately following the forum, you are all invited to, invited to join us for a celebration, reception, and free community open house from 1 to 4 p.m. Help us welcome us into our new home right here in Playhouse Square. You can learn more about this and other forums at CityClub.org. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. My name is Cynthia Connolly, and this forum is now adjourned. Have a good weekend. For information,
5: speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to CityClub.org.